Hey everyone, welcome to Flywheel Pod, your number one source for everything Frax, DeFi, and everything in between. And if you want to know what's going on in the world on chain, you've come to the right place. This is DeFi Dave, here with Capital K. We're here to help you harness the power of the flywheel. And this week we had on a legend in his own right, um, Mustap Murad, who was a big figure back in crypto Twitter uh, and in the Bitcoin maxi space from 2016-2018. He was gone for a little bit, had a change of heart, and uh, has come back better than ever, not as a trader, but as a builder as well with his new platform, STFX. Um, And I really enjoyed the conversation. We went so many different directions, guys. Um, What did you guys think? Man, it was very cerebral at at points. I was like, damn, this guy's going deep philosophically. And then I also love how he kind of brings it back to, you know, the, the framing of the battle between stables versus cryptos versus between the crypto infighting, between the stables infighting. It's, it's very clear that we have a long march ahead of us, but he, he was hopeful and that was good. Yeah. Um, Sam, what do you think? Oh, yeah, I had it. Sorry, I just get a little riled up with with uh, Bitcoiners. Gets my blood going. So, because uh, I'm a I'm a stablecoin maxi guys, that's why I'm here with uh, Flywheel Pod and Frax. So, um, just had to jump in. I had to ask a few questions, uh, but yeah. you know, it's all good. I I really like to see what Murad's building. His product looks awesome. Like it, it's really cool. Yeah. Wait, um, but none of us can use it because we're all Americans. So, um, if you're outside the United States, go check it out. It's really sweet. Yeah, no, that's. Um, I have a few friends that are ambassadors and that are close to the project and working on it. And they were telling me about it. I was like, this is such like a crypto native product that, you mm-hmm. know, I, it, it makes sense for something like this is going to be built. And I think Murad and the team that he's got together is the ultimate team to actually like get this product out to the masses. And so it's gonna be really ex- exciting to see like, you know, right now they're in alpha testing and like once it out, it, once it's out, like fully and like you can do all different kinds of vaults and like follow different all different kinds of traders i'm sure it will become a meme in itself yeah i yeah, i think I, the I coolest totally thing about it yeah i think the coolest thing about what he's building is it's it's just like a one-off thing right it's like take this trade this one trade with me it's not like you're asking them to like manage an entire portfolio or something it's very it's very light it's very quick um and like he said it's like when you're looking on the volatility and time spectrum it should be in the right place, right? So for the, the person who's making the trade can choose the volatility and time period that they want and then go with that, which is perfect. Yeah. And on that note, we can get this interview started. But before we do, do not forget to subscribe to us. Uh, hit that bell button, like, leave a comment, let us know what you think. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at FlywheelPod. You can follow... Oh, you can join our Telegram at FlywheelPod, and you can follow me on Twitter at DeFiDave22. You can follow me at 0x capital underscore K. And I'm a traders underscore insight. Let's get the flywheel spinning. All right, everyone, here we go with this uh, flywheel pod with the one and only Mustap Murad. Mustap Murad is the founder of STFX. He is also a trader and uh, OG that's been around since I since I remember when I first joined crypto Twitter, like you were one of my favorite go to accounts. You always had such you know, like like really such great insight, especially like at that time and during that cycle um, when there was definitely like a lot of noise and you know with all the ICOs and stuff. So you know, really appreciate your voice of reason, light, and it's honestly an honor to have you on. 
No, uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, I've been listening to a few of your guys' podcasts and I'm a huge fan, so super happy to be here. Awesome. Um, Murad, since you know, I've been interested in your insights for a while, I'm, I'm just wondering, like, what are your, the biggest factors that inform your whole crypto worldview? Um, so I guess it's a mixture of things. And um, I suppose it has to start from outside of crypto. I think um, just like the internet has allowed us to communicate and publish and to consume information in a relatively free manner. Uh, so obviously, like the internet itself has its little pockets and chokeholds of centralization. But as a whole, it's arguably the most decentralized system that the world has built thus far, right? And uh, I think it's important uh, that we do the same with money. And also with like other 12, 15 parts of finance as a whole, right? Um, I think right now a lot, of, um, a lot of aspects, both of the monetary system as well as of the overall financial and credit system are far too centralized. And um, somebody said something very interesting a few weeks back on Twitter. They said, the moment the very first computer got connected to another computer like back in the early 60s. Um, essentially, the separation of money and state was predestined, right? So it's just a matter of time mm. and we're like in the, and we're just in the middle of it unfolding, right? Um, and so uh, I, I'm just here for it pretty much. And I, I, I really want to see it happen. I think it will be for the better for the world in a variety of ways. Uh, what steps do you think will get us there to that separation of money and state? I, I guess it's more already happening, but like what steps do you see there and like what like obstacles and roadblocks do you see along the way? So this might not be the most romantic response, but I think we simply need like more uh, bull and bear cycles uh, pretty much because like by definition, uh, the peak of a bull is when like 85% of people first get into crypto. And the reason for that is because like a peak of a bull market, a also like price and attention are pretty much the same thing, right? And so a peak of a bull market represents a peak in attention. Uh, there's only like so many eyeballs in the world, multiply that by 24 hours. There's only so many kind of like news headlines we can consume per day, right? And peak of crypto bull markets is when crypto uh, like squeezes in and pushes other stuff out and you see it. And it's also associated with the emotions of like jealousy and drama and interest. Oh, like your cousin made like 30x in two weeks or whatever. And, and that's how people get in, right? <laughs> and so uh, uh, we pretty much need more of these boom and bust cycles because that's like, they're, they're the pockets that get more and more people involved. And it's through these, it's through these crazy boom and bust cycles that we grow. Exactly. Like every cycle brings in a wave of new people. And like, you know, there's people that get in for the hype. There's people that get into different reasons. And when the wave recedes, there's always a few people that just stick around and they kind of coalesce during the more, in the more, during the more difficult times. And like, that's what builds character. That's what builds, um, you know, like perseverance. That's what I'm trying to think of the other word, but yeah, it's just like you, you build up your strength during like the, the bear and the dark time. And when the next bowl comes, you hopefully take your lessons from the previous bowl and uh you know do well 
Um, yeah, for sure. And so, it's just like yeah. how there some startup models, they were possible in the zero interest rate or negative interest rate world, but they're not possible anymore in a 4% interest world, right? Similarly with crypto, more microeconomically speaking, like there's certain things that kind of work in a bull or as everything's going up, but uh, essentially bear markets are needed to kind of clean up the industry and uh, only leave stuff with sustainable unit economics, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you think that interest rates like at 4% will affect, you know, the on-chain world? Um, so part of the reason why I think crypto exists is it's almost like an emergent, almost like a biological counter reaction to like um, the global financial crisis. Right. And as well as the 15 years that followed after it. Right. Um, and I think as interest rates continue climbing for the foreseeable future, I think there will be less useless and just purely Ponzinomic, uh, type of projects, uh, in crypto. And I think it's for the better because I think that like the real like DeFi and crypto blockchain projects overall that are going to change the world should be those that should be useful regardless of market conditions rather than only those that work during super low interest rates, right? So um, it's probably for the better, in my opinion. I think artificially low interest rates create a lot of like perverted almost behavior in the financial markets. And uh, like a higher interest rate is just simply more natural at the moment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, especially like the past 15 years, you know, you had a lot of startups that they have the whole strategy for growth of growth and that's just not going to work in this kind of new environment. Yeah, I'm just thinking here, like, it's so funny that we talk about the separation of money and state, but yet we have this one individual who basically shows up every month and tells us what this interest rate is going to be. And that changes the, the way the money moves in the world. And like, whenever I think about that, I'm like, it's so obvious that we need to decentralize this. Like, how can this one man, as he was talking through his meeting, the prices of things were just swinging based on like <laughs> at the period, whether it be a long pause or whether it was a comma or it was just crazy to see that the power that one single person had on the markets. And yeah. with, with that said, like, uh, you know, Murat, how do you envision us transitioning away from that? Like literally just more bull and bear, bull and bear and people just start forgetting about the Fed? Like, I, I don't think so, right? Yeah, so there's kind of a few schools of thought on this. Some people think that the transition can happen like gradually and peacefully. Some people uh, think that it, it has to be like a sharp, violent thing. It's really difficult to say because um, pretty much like every monetary paradigm of one form or another in history uh, ended in chaos or inflation or some kind of societal collapse, right? And um, people talk about inflation, people talk about hyperinflation, people talk about the shifting of the monetary paradigm, etc. Uh, but whenever we study inflation, we always see it uh, like the most famous examples, right? Zimbabwe, Weimar Republic during the 1920s, mm -hmm. 1930s, Germany, etc. But the problem is that all of those were at, at like a national scale, right? And that's because that even in the 1930s, the world wasn't anywhere near as hyper-globalized as it is today. And as René Girard, uh, the philosopher who wrote mm -hmm. Things Hidden Since the Foundation of Man, famously said only just a few years ago, 
he said, um, in a hyper-globalized world, for complete destruction, all it takes is just a single match, right? And what he meant by that is uh, the world has become super connected, but that doesn't mean that it's super anti-fragile. So if I, I do think we're going to move away from the dollar in our lifetimes for sure. Whether that happens 10 years from now or 30 years from now, I don't know. But uh, I don't think it's going to be gradual. I do think that one of the crypto bull cycles that we end up having um, is going to be like a lot sharper, uh, positively sharper than the others. And it's going to coincide with the end of like fiat currencies pretty much. Yeah, Kit, what you were saying before about like the whole world just watches this one man give out the numbers and report. I bet you like when historians look back hundreds or thousands of years from now, they're going to view that as a religious ceremony. And like, there's really like no difference. Like if you like look back to like ancient Greece and the oracles of Adelphi giving their prophecies, like there's a lot of similarity in that and like how much meaning that has and how much meaning like, you know, j giving out, you know, the daily interest rate, or like giving out like what they decided the daily interest rates to be. It's just really, it's really funny to think about it from that kind of historical perspective and social perspective. No, I, I was literally just thinking like if aliens are watching us, they might be like super confused as how like this is so abnormal, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I so... think like our, our, our children and our grandchildren, I think they're going to be even more digitally native than we are. And mm -hmm. I think to them, uh, fundamentally, they'll, they'll, they'll trust open source code and machines more than they trust humans. And it's, it's, it's a technology, it's a, it's a demographic and technological and a generational shift. So um, just I, I think just like simply spiritually uh, our like grandkids, they'll think that everything that's open source and, and on chain based is simply like cooler and more trustworthy. And I think like that's that's how the shift will happen as well. Like it's almost a spiritual thing. Yeah. And I guess I'll take a few more. By like that time, the psychos will go through and like by that time, like open source will be such a standard and life on chain will be such a standard. It would almost be, you know, expected. And if it's not like that, then, you know, it's just not going to fly with people. Yeah, I'm trying yeah. to think through how um, that transition works, because, you know, these things have to yeah. be taught to the next generation, I, right? You see our kids kind of growing up with this technology. So we must be the one that teaches them that open source is good and is widely practiced in the industry. On chain is real and that's what we all need to do. So there needs to be a- True permissionlessness. You know, exactly. Yeah. Um, Murat, a quick question for Murat. Like, I think we jumped right in, but I would love to hear just a little bit about your background and what was your first uh, foray into crypto? Um, yeah, so I was actually doing a semester abroad in uh, university and that ha I was just super lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Um, that was late 2013, early 2014 in China. And that was right when the like November 2013 bubble happened, when Bitcoin first jumped to like $1,000, $1,100, I believe. And since then, I've been following the, the space like a lot more closely obviously but um it's been more so 2016 onwards that i've really jumped into the space um originally i am from uh, azerbaijan went to school in the united states uh studied chinese and finance and so i i happened to be like in china at the time during like that bu that bubble obviously already had an interest in finance so um 
a couple of my friends were Americans who were like employees number three and number four at an exchange that's currently known as OKX. And back then it was like literally just five people. Um, and they've kind of gotten me, they've urged me to kind of pay more attention to the space. And um, yeah, I was just like super lucky to be like influenced by the right people early on. Good friends. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Honestly, being around the right people early on and being around the right influences and, and in a way like being ab absorbed by that world and information is like so vital in order to get into it. Because you have people that like they might hear about it on the news, they might hear friends talk about it, but they're not in it. But if you have friends that are in it and that are like constantly telling you about it, constantly informing you about it, teaching you about it, it really makes a difference, um, you know, providing like a solid foundation. And once you and then you get comfortable with crypto and then you can just do your own thing. I think like regardless of how like hyper capitalist or hyper individualistic you may be, it's important to be mature enough to understand that like luck and environment and serendipity, they definitely like play a role for sure. Yeah, just having all the stars aligned with those people and timing. Like I got into it in 2017 because I was working at Everpedia and we were just, you know, we were like, oh, let's go from encyclopedia, blockchain encyclopedia. And I was just absorbed by it, hearing like people talk about it every day. If I didn't have that kind of, you know, immersive learning environment, I'm not sure if I would have, you know, been able to like learn as much or know as much as I do now. I mean, if you actually think about it, um, all kinds of like opportunities in the world as well as markets themselves and products and tokens and all of that, it's really just groups of people, right? And yeah. so it's, it's really important, like the quality of the people in your life, it's literally make or break. Yeah, you are the five people you surround yourself with the most. For sure, for sure. Yeah. The, other one, the, one, the other one that I like is, if you are the smartest person in the room, you're probably in the wrong room. <laughs> yep, they really do go hand in hand. Um, I was going to ask, like, from, like, the 2016-2018 cycle to, like, now the 2020-2022 to cycle, how do the two cycles compare? Um, so, one thing that I'm noticing is that crypto is becoming, like, a little bit more mainstream. And uh, I think um, the NFT wave in particular over the past couple of years has really played a role. Because I think that um, just like psychologically speaking, associating yourself with like a digital Pokemon card pretty much is a lot easier and straightforward and simpler than uh, trying to understand the curve wars or just all this like triple quadruple looping in DeFi and all, all that stuff. Right. And so so NFT definitely brought a lot more people into crypto as a whole. Definitely got a lot more people to install MetaMasks and still have some ETH dust in their wallets and and uh, like try out stablecoins and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, so it's a good thing. Uh, but essentially, like I'm sure all of you guys saw like this curve of innovation crossing the chasm type of thing. Uh, we're probably one or two cycles away from like crossing the chasm, right? And uh, there is some kind of an innovation or some kind of a new sub part of the market. Or some kind of a new product that brings like more and more of the like the mainstream crowds in obviously like kind of like the hipster in us wishes that it was still like 2012 bitcoin or whatever and just like 14 hardcore libertarians in the forums discussing and like being super early but the the reality is with any of your favorite things in life um 
if if it succeeds, it's going to be normified a little bit. That's just the reality yeah. of the situation, right? So um, there's no way around that. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it. I think it's a matter of infrastructure. So really, the people that are actually building the infrastructure, making the wallets easier to use, uh, making the platforms easier to use, etc., they are the ones that are probably pushing the space forward, like most notably, because. Uh, as one bear market comes turns into like another bear market in between those, they are the ones that make like the actual regular retail person. Um, they make their user experience easier, right? And so that that's like that's like the key to like the the movement from the fiat bubble to the to the crypto bubble, so to speak. But yeah. I would say like uh, to answer your question, 2014, 2015, 2016, it was still like more niche and. Like I remember a period when it was literally just like only eight or nine altcoins and uh, it was still like kind of like Silk Road, dark markets, like libertarian crowds. Right. And as it opened up, it's like a wide, it's like less niche, more wider. But like you can't have the market caps going up without this happening. So it's just part and parcel of growth. Yeah, no, for sure. And I agree with you. I think like in terms of getting people, more people into crypto and like at the beginning of the funnel, like for this cycle is NFTs, I can definitely see the next cycle being wallets and infrastructure. And it's just being like easier for people to interact with the world on chain. If there's one thing that crypto could improve on, on a lot, it's definitely like the wallets and the front facing part of crypto. For sure. Yeah. Do you think there is like a dilution of values, right? Like, you know, decentralization, permissionless. And as you see, like all these other uh, all L1s kind of spin up with their trade-off in decentralization for performance. Do, do, you, do you feel like as we go more mainstream, this dilution is inevitable and is actually needed to bring on the mass adoption? I honestly am starting to think that the whole uh, like L1 thesis is reaching its end. Um, there's only so many trade-offs and differentiations that you can have. I think... Um, People are simply trying to recreate something like an Ethereum or a mini Solana. Uh, VCs simply know that uh, like the smart contract platform that ends up succeeding, their native token is likely to become like money-like, so to speak. And that's like the biggest total addressable markets in crypto. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, that's why everybody always invests in, in, in L1s and people super, like pray and spray into those kinds of platforms. But I think like we are about to reach the stage where I honestly don't even know whether the world really needs more than five or six L1s. And even that might be too many. Um, I think it's going to start getting consolidated. And yeah. I, ho I kind of hope that this Aptos and Sui and these other like these other ones that are coming up are kind of go nowhere so that people just stop piling 400, 500 million dollars into these things because it's pretty much like starting to be useless. We need to be we need to be working on like L2s, L3s, app chains and actual like DeFi use cases rather than just another L1. It's it's kind of getting tired. And also because like whenever you make a trade off in the direction of speed, uh, yeah, you might get you might start building dApps which can have like 100,000 transactions per second or whatever. But that's the, the token of that system. That's not going to be good money. And I think that like the tech, the tech side of the investors and the Silicon Valley, they don't understand like 
as much as I love some of the DeFi projects that are built on Solana and some of these other systems, and we're probably going to deploy on every chain in our own app as well. Uh, I honestly don't think like Sol or some of these other coins just simply make good money, you know? And um, yeah, that's, that's just kind of like what I think about it. Can you go into that more? Like, why don't you think it makes good money because of the trade-offs that it makes? Yeah, I mean, uh, in order to be... So we need to understand that blockchains are... Um, they're simultaneously money and payment systems, and in many of these cases, smart contract or dApp systems, right? And as you make trade-offs in favor of some of one of these functionalities rather than the other, um, it makes like the money part worse. So Bitcoin went like super hardcore into the money part. And a lot of like the early Bitcoin believers, they, they believe that like optimizing for the gold-like store of value, like functionality, quote unquote, is more important than having dApps on chain. Uh, and probably some of like the Bitcoiners will hate me for saying this, but um, it, again, I will repeat myself. We need to understand that these are not just like money, like a gold bar. It, the value of the gold does not depend on the amount that it gets traded per day. But blockchains, their security systems are built in a way where it's a money and a payment network simultaneously. And for the payment network to work, you need the money to be worth something. And for the money part to work, you need the payment network to like be high volume and robust, right? And mm -hmm. if one of them fails, the other one starts to fail. And obviously everybody has been talking about Bitcoin having the problem of low fees, right? Like there's literally like five dApps on, or there's a couple of dApps on Arbitrum right now that, that, that make more in fees than Bitcoin does. And that's a problem, right? And so um, because of that, there's only two ways out of this. Either Bitcoin will somehow find a way to have sustainable um, transaction fee revenue without adding inflation, or it will have to add some kind of a small inflation, right? And if you add a small inflation, you're kind of going against the Bitcoin religion of having purely set, even a deflationary supply, right? It's kind of like that, that mythos, that whole spiritual idea that it was built upon. And obviously goes without saying that the reason why the transaction fee revenue hasn't become super robust on Bitcoin is because all of the what they call degenerate use cases actually ended up happening on Ethereum, Solana, and a bunch of other chains. And so casinos, NFTs, all of DeFi, DAOs, gambling, leverage trading. Um, you can say that all of these in isolation are stupid, but when you bundle all of them together, it ends up being like hundreds of millions of dollars of total revenue. And it's yeah. something, right? You may, you may hate it or love it, it may not align with your ideas of purity or whatever, but there is demand for these services. And because they don't happen on BTC, it creates like a, it, it's going to, it's going to be a problem, right? And so essentially the existence of Ethereum, Ethereum L2, Solana, and these other chains kind of represents almost like an existential crisis for some of these other coins, so to speak. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, I was going to ask you, what do you think of Ethereum's cha uh, transition from proof of work to proof of stake? Like, how does it change the nature of Ethereum? Does it make it more like money? Does it make it more valuable? Like, what do you think? Um, I'm, I'm not so religious about proof of work. I think a future store of value could work as a proof of stake system, to be honest. Mm hmm.
and um, I mean, like, and, and obviously, like, I, and this has nothing to do with my views on the environment at all. Um, I don't think that Bitcoin utilizing a lot of energy is bad for the environment. Um, I mean, I I think that the more energy that Bitcoin consumes, the better, because as human civilization grows and as the human economy has grown, uh, we have been consuming more and more energy as a whole every decade. And that's just going to continue in perpetuity. And there's absolutely like nothing wrong with that. In fact, from an environmental perspective, uh, large scale proof of work mining like increases um, energy efficiencies and it actually incentivizes the production of uh, alternative alternative and sustainable uh, like energy generation. But um, so like whether I like or hate proof of stake uh, that has nothing to do with the environmental concerns. I just think that um, it, it can work just as well as proof of work. Now, there is an argument to be made that it is uh, in terms of like the ownership of the original coins and the health of their flow through the system, there is an argument to be made that um, proof of work is a little bit more of an egalitarian or, or a bit of it more of a fair model because the miners constantly have to spend the, 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 the coins and kind of get them back into circulation in one way or another. While in the proof of stake systems, essentially the people who have been large Ethereum stakeholders since early days pretty much continue having that advantage in perpetuity. Uh, but uh, I was never the kind of person who to ever care about equality really of any kind. So once just like the environment stuff, that's not really um, like a detraction for me. Um, and yeah, I, I honestly think that both Essentially, I think both proof of stake and proof of work can work well. Mm. And how do you think, what do you think of this new, uh, as, what do you think of Ethereum now as proof of stake? How does it, like, not um, comparing really proof of work to proof of stake, but like, how do you think, like, the new Ethereum with uh, proof of stake, like, used, like, how is it as money? I guess, actually, you already answered, never mind. Yeah. 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 No, that's a great question. Um, so, like, early on in the BTC debates, uh, it was super, the biggest debate in Bitcoin history was whether we need to promote the store of value aspect more or the medium of exchange aspect more, right? And yeah. every monetary economist will tell you that they're like, both of them matter and they play off into each other and it's almost like synergistic and a feedback loop and you, you need to kind of bring both together. But, um, and by the way, I, I'm going to say all of the following as somebody who's like 85% of portfolio is still in BTC. Um, just because like, I, I, I like sleep at night better with most of it being there for now. But, um, what I will say is a lot of like the Bitcoin proponents, especially during the, like the 2017 wars, they believe that the store of value, like essentially like making it more gold-like that aspect is more important because, um, the idea is first you need to make it valuable and spending it is kind of stupid. Why would you spend, uh, why would you spend Bitcoin, which is going to become this like super precious gold for Starbucks? It doesn't make any sense. And, uh, in full transparency, I was the one who had this view myself for like three or four years. Right. Um, and then there were people who believed that it's important, like the way for it to grow, is to kind of almost force people to accept it in commerce and kind of kind of spend and replace is better 
because it incentivizes the construction of infrastructure uh, like ADMs, payment machines, all of these like merchants that kind of uh, you can pay in BTC or ETH and it instantly gets converted to stable coins if you don't like crypto or whatever, blah, 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 right? And so that, those have been the two schools of thought, right? Now, the reality is obviously somewhere in between, but I think Ethereum is kind of proof indirectly proved that the second model and the second philosophy has legs because um, Bitcoin's power is that it is like the most robust. It is the one that's less unwilling to change and it is the most conservative. It is the most deliberately slow moving, etc. Right. And there are certain advantages of that. And the advantage of, the, of that is anxiety reduction. And as a store of value, like anxiety reduction from first principles is super important. Uh, Ethereum, on the other hand, took the other approach where because of all these use cases that I mentioned, like gambling, NFTs, DAOs, DeFi, obviously being the biggest one, um, it almost like Ethereum forced itself as like the payment currency for a lot of these things. And that's how it grew. Right. And so it, it forced itself as a payment currency. But whether you like it or not, like people buy, let's say, 100 ETH or 10 ETH, and then they end up like playing around with five or six of them. And or but three or four of them end up just like staying in their wallets. And but that that aspect also is how Bitcoin becomes store of value as well, right? So it, it's essentially like two strategies for growth, and Ethereum is kind of like proving the power of the second one. So like that's kind of like the the, the philosophical battle, right? Yeah, that's a great way of looking at it. Uh, just like two different philosophies, uh, like one store of value uh, prioritized, the other is a uh, medium of exchange prioritized. But would you also ar ar like argue that with uh, you know this whole ultrasound money mean you know EIP one five five nine? It's like making it, you know, even like more store of value like because it's actually like becoming like attempting to become deflationary. Yeah, uh, it it I believe that with the burning of some of the fees, obviously, it has the potential to become not just disinflationary, but outright deflationary. Right. Mm -hmm. And that can have a positive momentum to the token. Um, it's very difficult to say that whether like um Slight deflation, disinflation, or deflation is best. I definitely don't believe it's, it's slight inflation. I believe for the past 30 years, the governments have been controlling the uh, economic uh, the, the economic departments in the biggest academic institutions. And so, like, we need 2 or 3% inflation. I think that's a scam. Uh, so it's either disinflation <laughs> or, def or I think it's either... It's a scam to, be, to perpetuate, like, central banking and the fiat currency system, right? And uh, I believe it's either disinflation or deflation that's best. Uh, which one of the two is better? I don't know. Uh, Bitcoiners argue that uh, the thing about Ethereum is that they've kind of been changing the monetary policy a little bit more willy-nilly every three, four years, right? Uh, and it's like less set in stone for the next 140 years, uh, which is an argument that has legs. But also, like, like we said, on the uh, Bitcoin side, we still don't know 100% whether not ever adding inflation will be sustainable. I really hope it is, but we'll see. Um, and yeah, uh, so yes, Ethereum technically could become even more deflationary than BTC. Uh, for the longest time, I thought that when it comes to crypto, people, uh, both BTC and ETH, right? People used to say that, oh, like it's like uh, no inflation, uh, uncensorability of transactions and unseizability of your wealth, right? People used to always have these like three selling points as like the biggest. And then people used to debate which of those is the most important. I kind of thought that uh, no inflation was um, like the, the coolest thing. 
But I realized that it, A, it may be my like first world privilege speaking. And two, most people don't really care uh, about whether it's like slight inflation or slight disinflation because most of the people's like brain, it's like too short term thinking in order to really care about these like multi-generational like effects and stuff, right? So really it's unseizability and, un, uh, and uncensorability that will prove to be more important in times of chaos for sure. Um, I mean, you're already seeing a lot of people deplatformed and people not being able to conduct business, etc. So crypto comes in very handy there. But um, again, I'm returning to this point for the fourth time. It seems to me that the currency of dApps, even though like I say, even though one dApp in itself can be like small, when you get thousand different dApps or blockchain based use cases together, it becomes a whole new digital economy, right? And yeah. I think that the currency that becomes the de facto currency there, um, that's the currency that wins, right? And so comparing ETH to BTC, ETH has obviously made more forays or more progress in that sense. But we yeah. need to also remember that uh, ETH and BTC are also fighting against stablecoins. And really, stablecoins is just dollar on the dollar on the internet. Really, that's what it is, right? And yeah. Jeremy Allaire, Jeremy Allaire, just a couple of days ago, he said, uh, "The nature of the world is such that CBDC, it might not be like this whole new thing that governments will impose, but what they're much more likely to do is they're much more likely to take USDC and then." kind of adopted as this hybrid corporate governmental thing, right? Simply yeah. because USDC is so much more far ahead in being embedded in these systems, right? So that's kind of, that's kind of like where we are. Yeah. Why where do you, you see Frax? Hold on a second. I, I just want to ask a question where, like where, why do you say that stable coins are in opposition, right? Because one thing that is well known in crypto markets is that a lot is driven by leverage and debt. Right. Like if you look at the uh, leverage levels for crypto, it, it goes up when we're in a bull market and it comes down when we're in a bear market. Right. And, you know, I, I have this view uh, where, uh, you know, the higher the Bitcoin goes, the higher the Ethereum goes, the more I can borrow against it. And I don't want to borrow ETH. I don't want to borrow BTC. I want to borrow in dollars because for one thing, I know that inflation is 2% a year or 4% a year, whatever it is right now. Uh, and if I do take that loan, it's going to get cheaper over time. Why would I want to borrow? Like borrowing Bitcoin is probably the worst thing that you can do, right? Because it's a it's a hundred percent volatility asset that may double, right? Like you borrow one BTC, all of a sudden it goes from twenty thousand to forty thousand dollars. You're screwed because now the collateral that you've borrowed, you've got to pay back in BTC. It's a terrible asset to borrow. So I think it's really short sighted to say that like the, the dollar is going to go away. It, it, I don't think it would because from a from a debt standpoint, it's the best thing that you can have. I, I wouldn't want to take any debt in anything else, right? Um, I mean, maybe some like non-US-based uh, 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 currency like the euro or something else, but that's all relative, right? When we talk about fiat currencies, I mean, they're all debt-based instruments, right? They're not, they're not collateral, right? And so I, th I think it's, it's, it's a different conversation to be had, right? And so the dollar works really well because it's the best debt-based asset, not because it's the best collateral-based asset. Yeah, so I, I definitely agree. Uh, as a borrower, you are always incentivized to borrow the currency that you think is going to depreciate in value, right? Um, I think the bigger driver of prices and market caps in crypto assets isn't the credit markets. 
I still think that the size of the credit markets of the size of the credit markets in crypto overall are still like a drop in the ocean very small. compared to the um, 200, 300 trillion or more that exists in like TradFi credit, right? And um, I think the bigger drivers for now still is what assets people choose as um, like a store of value investment, right? Instead of, instead of real estate, instead of art, instead of stocks, like what, which coins replace those? Right. And it's Bitcoin, ETH and stable coins, maybe a couple of other alts. Right. But like they, these are the big these are like the biggest competitors right now. And ultimately, um, there's multiple wars going on going on at the same time. There's wars between BTC and ETH. There's wars between ETH and like ETH copycats. There's wars between like BTC and ETH together on one side and stable coins on the other side. And then there's wars among the stable coins, right? But I think mm -hmm. for simplicity's sake, we should consider stable coins the same as fiat because technically they are. Um, and the most interesting battle among these in my mind is, uh, so I think like BTC and ETH market caps will continue to grow as well as the stable coins market cap will continue to grow. And the ultimate battle will be between the two, right? The ultimate battle will actually be between the volatile cryptos and the, like the stable coin cryptos. And ultimately, I believe that the volatile cryptos will, will win. You think Why? the volatile but, cryptos but will win? I just don't understand, right? Because, like, if, again, like, if I buy Bitcoin at 20,000 and it goes to 100,000, I now have probably up to 60 or $70,000 worth of credit that I can borrow against the BTC, right? And, uh, you know, however much credit that I take is dependent, but I'm going to be borrowing in dollars, right? I'm not going to be borrowing in ETH or something else. No, you. Yes, uh, you are going to be borrowing in dollars while dollars exist. But what why, are you? But why be would they go? But why would they a, go away? Why, like I'm, I'm just wondering, like where you're getting this idea where uh, a debt-based instrument that allows me to have, uh, uh, like, a non-volatile debt-based instrument, which doesn't have 100% volatility, um, like, why would I want to borrow in anything else, right? Because if you look at if you look so, at how the dollar mm -hmm. goes, I mean, most of okay. So I know you guys were talking about like Treasury and uh, sorry the Fed and stuff earlier, but like most dollar creation occurs outside the United States, right? The the U.S. doesn't have much insight into most of the dollar creation, right? Because when it, like an Argentinian bank lends to like a Chinese bank or a Chinese bank lends to an Argentinian bank, and they're doing it in dollars, those dollars are not on the Fed's balance sheet or like they're not they're not a part of the Fed's equation, right? So there's there's so much there's so much dollar creation that happens outside of the scope of the Fed. So whatever they make the interbank lending rates at, it's a small that's that's really like a drop in the pond, right? The bond market is so big and so deep that like it, it's it, the, the Fed doesn't really affect these things. They try to just like they're like a small sailboat in the giant wave of the bond market trying to like make it go one way or the other. But it, 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 it just, I don't, I don't see why we would move away from this debt-based instrument to like a fully collateral based instrument. And if you, if you, if you, if you want to tell me, or if you have ideas about how that would happen, I would be really interested because currently like we fund everything on debt, right? When you buy a house, you buy it on debt. When you buy a car, you buy it on debt. When companies go out and like build stuff, they're like they're doing it with bonds and they're they're raising debt, right? Everything is everything's a debt based system. So like, why? Where is the incentivization to move away from that debt based system into something that you're saying is more like collateral based? Yeah. So <clears throat> before cryptocurrencies were ever created, 
we lived in a world of fiat money only. Let's say, for simplicity's sake, let's say we, live in a we lived in a dollarized world, right? Right now, we live in a world where both crypto, like volatile crypto assets and dollars still coexist together. But I think it's extremely naive to think that this hybrid world where both um, crypto assets and fiat money exist simultaneously, the idea that that will happen forever, I don't think that's very realistic. And I think one has to destroy the other. And in my opinion, volatile crypto assets are going to destroy fiat currencies because for a very simple reason. Um, fiat currencies are inflationary, right? So whatever percentage of your wealth that you're storing in them, uh, every year it depreciates in value. Now, crypto assets such as Bitcoin and ETH, on the other hand, uh, in the long term, like if you look at the last 10 years, uh, it's been the opposite. Uh, because they are not creating new units, but in some cases actually destroying units, what's going to happen when you extrapolate into the future is that the unit of one priced in the unit of the other, uh, so the unit of a cryptocurrency priced in the unit of an inflationary dollar, it will keep on growing literally forever, right? Of course, the rate of growth will slow down, but I believe it will keep on growing forever up until it's, it's, it's literally like two bowls. And each of, these, each, each of these boom and bust cycles that we have, you have some of the water from one going into the water from the other. And the BTC and Ethereum buckets are still super small. They're super small. And I still think we're going to have three, four, five of these boom and bust cycles, after which it's going gonna, it's gonna to grow, right? So even though it looks like this, like if you kind of smooth it over, it's just it's steady growth really what it is. Mm -hmm. And um, there will come a time where I believe the fiat system breaks down completely. And I think that whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's Ethereum that's going to be the dominant money of the future, uh, the debt of the future is going to be uh, denominated in that currency. Now, uh, our minds, when we think about lending and credit, we think about them in the context of today's central banking, fractional reserve, euro dollar, uh, money bank to bank uh, lending money creation ways right but that is not the only financial system that can exist that's simply the one that we have been taught from birth that's like the status quo now obviously the system will have to change and adapt if in a hyper bitcoinized or a hyper etherized world there will no doubt be less credit and less debt and it will be a more equity-based system. Whether that's better or worse for society or for economic growth, I don't know. Uh, there is Keynesians who believe it's going to be worse because it's going to be less credit and credit drives society. There is Austrians who believe it's actually going to be better because it's the credit systems that create the hyper-volatility of booms and busts. And actually, instead of the crazy booms and busts, we're going to have steady growth instead, which is actually better for the human psyche because it allows for you to focus on 12-year-long projects as opposed to 12-week-long projects, right? So there's pros and cons of both. Uh, but ultimately, it doesn't matter what's better for society because that's a socialist way of thinking. What matters is how will decentralized markets choose their next money? And I believe they'll choose the deflationary ones over the inflationary ones. So the, the dollar credit system will destroy itself. But Ryan, yeah. let me ask you one more. Uh, let me ask you one more question, and I, I can give it back to you, Dave. Um, like, 
I, the general, I, I know the general argument you're making. You're saying that at some point, Bitcoin, Ethereum, whatever, is going to like stop being a hundred percent volatility asset and become a much less volatile asset. And I don't, I don't really believe that because the numbers say differently, right? Bitcoin's remained as volatile as it has been from from the beginning, right? It's it's still just as volatile today as it was uh, twelve years ago when it was launched, right? There is there's literally no okay. So the the only de- the only decrease in Bitcoin's volatility has it happened at like the extreme extremes. But if you look at the at, like the median volatility, it's been flat for over a decade now. So to I just I. There's all these like things that oh Bitcoin's going to be used by everybody and eventually it's going to become less volatile. What if that never happens? What if we just it stays 100% volatile asset? That's not really something. Again, it's coming back to like debt markets, and you're you're making this argument which I don't really find, uh, which I don't really accept. Right? That somehow a volatile asset which has 100% volatility plus right is somehow going to be accepted as the primary. Uh, currency for debt markets it just doesn't make sense because it, it, there's too much there's too much uncertainty for both the lenders and also for the borrowers right because let's say i'm lending bitcoin right uh, when i lend that bitcoin out i'm now short i'm short bitcoin uh to the borrower right so if the price of bitcoin declines by 50 percent, which it does all the time right does all the time uh i'm out of a lot of money right uh, you know the the person who borrowed that money can pay that back and I'm actually losing money there, right? And same thing for for you. I mean, Moran, like if I had, if you're going to buy a house today, and and you, somebody offered to give you a loan in Bitcoin and said, okay, here, you know, I'll give you a 25 BTC loan for 30 years, right? Like you would never take that because you don't know what the price of BTC is going to be in 30 years. It could be higher, it could be lower, but it's probably not going to be where it's at today. When you look at something like the dollar, right? Which again is the primary use case for. Uh, the dollar. It's all debt-based, right? Everything is debt-based. There is no, there is no non-debt dollars, right? Everything is everything is a liability on someone's balance sheet. Both the central banks, both the, the treasury, every everything about the dollar in the banks, it's always a liability. So, um, I, I I don't think that you're making a solid argument when it comes to uh, saying that somehow this this hyper volatile instrument is somehow going to become. The next deck-based instrument. Because if I again coming back to the house problem, you would never take that that twenty-five BTC loan ever, because you would unless you're hedging it, unless you're hedging it, and then you're taking out the volatility, and then essentially why not just take a dollar-based loan, right? So so I very very strongly disagree with you, very strongly disagree with you, and the reasons are the following. So there have been many many quantitative reports analyzing comparing. Bitcoin's volatility. I personally believe it has become less volatile than it was. To be. Uh, it grows less in bull markets and it decreases less in bear markets. And it's just going to continue happening. Now, also, but even beyond that, you and I have been tracking Bitcoin markets for like less than a decade, right? And I think with the topics that we're discussing, you need to not think in, in years, you need to think in centuries almost. And there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that 50, 60 years from now, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum will be significantly less volatile than they are today. It's just mathematics because something that like an asset whose full diluted market cap is 10 trillion, whether you like it or not, it's going to be less volatile than something that's a penny stock that's 10 million. Uh, That's just how liquidity works. 
And even at, at 10 trillion, it might not yet be the currency that underwrites the debt, as you're saying. But it, eventually, it will be that currency. It, 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 look, um, Bitcoin can keep growing while dollar or some kind of a stable coin or some kind of a quasi-stable instrument can continue existing. That quasi-stable thing can even be a tokenized longer short position of a, of, an, of, a, of a cryptocurrency. It can be many different things. But I think eventually in the super far long term, I'm, I'm literally talking about like sci-fi far future, it will only be one uh, currency in the world that uh, is still super volatile today. But in the future, it will not be. And that will be the currency that literally runs the entire economy. We may be thinking on different time frames. Maybe 20, like 20 years from now, I think you're still, I, I think you're still going to be correct. But I think uh, 70, 80 years from now, that's when my argument starts getting a lot stronger. Uh, and uh, look, uh, it's, it's, it's impossible for, for the dollar to survive because I think it, it might not seem to you right now, but I think the mere existence of Bitcoin and Ethereum, it almost presents an existential danger to fiat currencies. Uh, because with each of these boom and busts, and even if I'm too optimistic and it takes 10 or more uh, boom and bust cycles, people will get more educated to the fact that this money-like asset is inflationary while this other money-like asset is deflationary. And today, dollar might be worth 100 trillion in today's dollars. But I think it's going to, it's going to get smaller and weaker. That's what I believe in. I think since 2016, the world is deglobalizing. And I think, uh, yes, we might have spikes in, de, uh, in, in the dollar index in the medium term before the entire fiat currency system will go to shit. But eventually, I do think the fiat, the fiat currency, what we saw in Weimar Republic, it will happen on a global scale. And after that happens, it's not going to be the dollars or the fiat currencies that are, going to, that are going to be underwriting debt. It's going to be something else. Wait, uh, you said in 2016, the world has been deglobalizing since. Can you uh, explain that point a little bit more? Uh, so you think the world is becoming less connected? In some ways, yes, it is. Um, I, the fact that the world has kind of been deglobalizing since 2015, 2016 is a, is a popular idea. It's kind of a cliche right now. But essentially, yeah. um, Brexit, some of the import-export wars that we've seen with China, obviously the war in Ukraine, companies leaving Russia, uh, Russian companies leaving other countries, etc., etc., uh, all of these things, I think, are cracks in the kind of like, you could say, a globalizing lib neoliberal order that we've seen since 1960s up until 2010s, right? And uh, we are probably going to enter a multipolar world for the next three or four decades, um, which is going to be a little bit different. And you, it's, yeah. I, I personally, I think it's very interesting how crypto plays a role in that and yeah. uh it, it's if fiat currencies go away it's interesting to think which of the countries will benefit and lose more from that right yeah do you in this multipolar world who are the players you see uh you know biology says like in the multipolar world it would be like the u.s circle of influence the chinese circle of influence and also like the sovereign crypto circle of influence that's kind of like the new third way. Do you agree with that? Do you think there's other big parties at play at the table? Um, I think it's going to be uh, NATO versus China, pretty much. 
Okay. And uh, there will be extremely wealthy crypto holders on both sides. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and we were talking about stablecoins before, and obviously this is a Frax podcast, so I definitely want to get into your thoughts about Frax. Um, I saw you're in a few Frax groups. Um, how long have you been following Frax for? Like, what do you like about Frax, and where do you see Frax fitting in the in the crypto in the future? Uh, yeah, I've been kind of following Sam Kazamian's work ever since Everypedia. Uh, I had oh, a bunch yeah. of friends. <laughs> I had a bunch of friends in the EOS uh, community, like overall, <laughs> uh, like just been kind of like wouldn't say early to steam but kind of been following eos in general and a bunch of those dApps uh like early like early in the day uh they people joke that eos was like the the solana of the past right <laughs> yeah and so <laughs> and so um i really like um obviously like my anything i say i i say on frax isn't going to be anywhere near as insightful as your guys' knowledge on the on on the project, mm -hmm. but what I like is I like um, Andrew Kang's, and I believe that was just him paraphrasing Sam Kazemian uh, himself. I, uh, I I really like the late twenty twenty one thesis of how uh, the winners of the um, like the DeFi wars in general are going to be projects that are simultaneously most likely to have. A stable coin of their own, uh, kind of an like an AAM or a swap platform of their own, and I believe a lending platform of their own. And it's like that holy trinity, kind of the, the, the like the long term vision, right? And I think that given what Frax has done, it's probably like one of the three or four projects that's like in the running or has made the most progress towards containing that holy trinity in one uh, decentralized autonomous organization. And that's like the core, that's like in, in a few sentences, that's the core reason why I'm bullish on it. Also, uh, generally, like more from a price or TA perspective, it obviously took a giant hit um, after the whole Terra uh, collapse. And uh, yeah, uh, I think like it was very attractive in the summer and probably even right now at these prices relative to like the long-term vision. Obviously, counter to that are some of the like the regulatory risks and like the whole American nature of the project, obviously. Uh, founders being in America is like, a, it's not a positive in DeFi, but, um, but the DYDX and Uniswap guys somehow make it work. So there is always hope. Uh, but yeah, uh, these are kind of like my thoughts on Frax and why I like it. So you've been following Sam since the Everpedia days. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, wow. So it, that's, that's really cool. That's funny. Like, it's our, cause like I was at Everpedia. I was one of the first employees at Ever, Everpedia and I remember following you there. And so like very, uh, you know, I guess serendipitous. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I want to jump in real quick here. Um, so, so Murad, can you share a little bit about like this new project that you're working on, uh, STFX? Right, like what what kind of brought you about to it, and um, share with the audience like what STFX is in the first place. Yeah, so uh, it's kind of at the intersection of like two spaces or two trends in crypto. So first of all, decentralized asset management, uh, pretty much like on-chain funds. You can break, you can separate them into passive or active. I'm going to be focusing on active, kind of for the next several sentences. But people have been trying to build on-chain funds 
since 2016 with Enzyme uh, on Ethereum. And there have been like 15 attempts as a whole across like five or six different chains since. But um, the TVL of all the actively managed decentralized asset management protocols right now is like 60 million, which in the grand scheme of DeFi is not that much in my opinion. And there's many reasons for this. I'm not going to go into all like 12 of them right now. I actually wrote a, a Medium article like listing a bunch of them. But essentially there's like a mismatch in crypto uh, between um, the demographic that is like the DeFi participants and like the type of use cases and the projects, right? And we kind of like one famous example is like fixed, uh, fixed term lending uh, or fixed uh, or like fixed yields, right? Uh, people like the entrepreneurs or the builders logic in 2020 and 2021 was uh, it's a it's a, it's a hundred trillion dollar industry in TradFi. Let's let's put it on the blockchain. And if we capture even like 0.01% of that, we're going to be rich. Right. But the reason it doesn't work is because like the current DeFi like power users, they are people who are relatively impatient, uh, risk seeking, uh, volatility seeking. Uh, kind of like to like kind of like DIY, kind of like to do things themselves, etc. Right? So there's that mismatch. Now I do think that eventually fixed yield rating it is going to consume all of DeFi. I believe that DeFi is going to take over all of finance, right? But right, we have to think a little bit short, medium term here. Um, and so instead of having on-chain funds which last months or years, we are building these new vehicles. We call them single trade funds or single trade vaults. Essentially, they're, you can think of them as on-chain funds that are literally dedicated to one trade at a time. So um, we think that pretty much like social trading, copy trading, uh, it, it already happens in crypto. It's probably one of the biggest use cases of crypto. It happens, but it happens like all over the place, right? It happens on Twitter, Telegram, private Discord chats, uh, etc. right? Um, we're trying to kind of put them all in one place. And the second kind of category, the second thing um, as I'm sure you guys know, vault, there's been kind of like vaults have been very popular in DeFi, like 2021 onwards. Uh, DeFi, you could argue, is kind of undergoing a vaultification of everything. Uh, a little bit less so right now in the bear market, but I believe it will kind of continue again. And as I'm sure you guys know, we've seen many different kinds of vaults, kind of like yield farming vaults, liquidity management vaults, most famously um, options vaults, right? Like Ribbon, Friction, Katana, uh, etc. They've popularized... Uh, these like sim relatively vanilla option strategies packaged it into like one click investments. Right. Uh, and obviously there's like a smaller niche of like exotics and structured products. Also they package into these vaults. The idea of vaults is you take these somewhat tedious or complex to execute strategies and you kind of turn the whole UX into one click for a retail investor. Right. Now, most of the vaults thus far have been focused on yield generation. Um, we are obviously building a much more aggressive type of vault, which is, uh, kind of like a vault dedicated to a trade. So you can either win a lot or, or lose a lot. Uh, and we think that there's going to be, we like our thesis is there's going to be more and more of these like aggressive vaults, uh, kind of directional vaults, you can say. And essentially, if you draw a, an axis between a duration on the x-axis and volatility in the y-axis, we're trying to occupy the top left corner, which is these vaults that are like kind of like super short term, but are also very volatile. And we believe that psychologically speaking, they're actually much more likely to find product market fit than a lot of these other vaults in crypto because uh, lever A, leverage trading is already the number one use case of crypto as a whole. And I believe will continue to be for the next 10 years. And second of all, 
like I said, it, it's better aligns with the demographic of DeFi power users. And uh, so our goal is essentially we are going to be um, building on top of the various decentralized exchanges and decentralized derivative exchanges. We started off with GMX on Arbitrum, but we're very soon we're going to be deploying on uh, Optimism, hopefully Ethereum Layer 1, uh, Avalanche, maybe even non-EVM chains like Solana. So we're completely agnostic uh, to the chains or the dApps. We want to be on top of everything. So our core competency, we're trying to build what we call a new category in DeFi. We call it SocialFi. Essentially, we're trying to combine like social like rankings, achievement boards, leaderboards, and kind of um, crowdfunding and investment together, management together with the more famous like DeFi building blocks, uh, such as options, futures, perpetuals. We're trying to build a, like a whole system based on that. And uh, we just reached over 2000 users um, after only three weeks of like alpha mainnet, right? Instead of doing a test net, we went straight on mainnet, but what we did instead is we limited the vault capacities to 200 USDC. Our audit is beginning next week, right? As more and more of our repos get audited, we're going to be slowly raising the capacity. And so we see no reason why we can't be running 400,000, 500,000 trade vaults. And so, yeah, pretty much you can think of them as trade vaults. So that's what we're building. Yeah. Very cool. So it's like winning with your friends or like you have some, uh, you know, I've been talking to Peach about this. You know, uh, one thing he like said to me earlier was having the hop, hop all alpha. There's like someone who might like have the right insight or like the right alpha at like the right time. And like with your platform, they can just like create a vault and they say, hey, guys, I have the strategy. I have this insight. And then people can like join in and they can aggregate that position because that copy trading already happens. But in like basically off chain and people just copy each other. This is a way to copy trade on chain in a sense. Exactly, exactly. And we are constantly, we're trying to, so even myself, right? I sometimes see a trader I really respect post a trading view chart or some kind of a thesis or a thread. And then I go and execute that process myself on like a centralized exchange or on GMX or somewhere, right? And we're trying to take that process and like literally turn it into one click. Very cool. Uh, I mean, so like I the best like, way, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So the last thing I'll say is like the best way, the easiest way to think about it is essentially it's a Kickstarter for trading ideas. I like that pitch. Yeah, yep. that's a clean pitch. And I, I mean, you literally created like, nonsense exists because people want to be able to track wallets and set alerts, but like, but that is just a means to an end. The end is to execute whatever this smart wallet was doing, right? So I feel like you just bypass nonsense completely and be like, forget about all this analytics. You could just appear easier with one click, right? Exactly. So, now, and my question is, what does the fees look like um, for, for both the, you know, what goes to the DAO and also what the manager gets to keep? And, and uh, how do you make sure that the um, managers don't front run the vaults? Yeah, great questions. So in terms of the fees, um, you know, the famous 80-20 uh, model in uh, like traditional finance, we're doing something very similar. So uh, right now, the actual protocol, it only takes a small fee on profitable vaults. Um, that's just what we're using early on because we think it's like less invasive and like less friction. So um, right now for every profitable vault, the investors get back 80, like obviously they get back their investment and they get back 80% of the profits. The manager gets 15% of the profits and the protocol gets 5% of the profits. 
So pretty straightforward. And we don't, ch we don't charge any management fees or anything like that. And in terms of uh, front running, um, so for now, we are we're, for the foreseeable future, we're going to be focused on kind of like top 10, top 15 assets in crypto. And we think that because like the high volume and high liquidity there, combined with the fact that we're still starting with small volts and we're only going to increase the maximum capacities relatively gradually, the front running isn't really going to be an issue for now. Like if you're doing an Ethereum or a Solana long or an Avalanche short or whatever, um, I don't think that people are going to go out of their way to make a $100,000 STV and then like use that as exit liquidity or whatever. Now, it does become a bigger problem if you're looking at the far tail end of a, of a BSC shitcoin or, or some unknown name on a Uniswap, obviously. But um, we're going to be extremely slow and conservative with the assets we add. And it's definitely going to go from biggest to lowest. So we don't think like this illiquidity games are front running. We don't think it's going to be a big issue for now. And also every single uh, manager, uh, they will have to earn the right to raise a lot of money. So on our platform, we're currently working on an algorithm where the maximum capacity and the reputation, it's actually the same thing. So if a manager has a, uh, has a reputation of 180,000, that means that he can raise 180,000 USDC for his vault, right? And vice versa. And the way it works is uh, it's flexible. So if you earn money for the world, uh, your uh, max capacity expands. And if you go on a losing streak, it shrinks, right? And um, everything is 100% transparent. Literally every single move that a manager or investor takes, it's on chain. And we're going to be running increasingly um, extensive analytics on people's profiles, people's achievements, how they perform on shorts, how they perform on longs. Are they a better Bitcoin trader? Are they a better Ethereum trader, et cetera, et cetera. So we have like a long roadmap for the analytics as well. Cool. What, what else is in the roadmap? Uh, so at the moment, we pretty much have like one integration, aka GMX on Arbitrum. We have one instrument type, which is leveraged futures, which I actually think is the most important one because that's like where the most of the volume is. And we have like one chain, which is Arbitrum, right? Uh, very we're already working on what we call STFX 2.0, uh, which we're hoping to launch uh, very, very early in 2023. And that's going to be like more multi-investment type, more multi-chain, multi-platform. And there's going to be a lot more customizability for the managers to create like more complex vaults. Very cool. Um, so we, yeah. essentially, like we're starting off right now with uh, leveraged uh, perpetual futures trading simply because uh, it's the most popular product in crypto uh, in terms of volume, in terms of liquidity, etc. Uh, we think that if we find product market fit there, we can then horizontally expand to spot options even NFT trading, right? Whether it's NFT perpetuals mm. or actual NFT themselves, essentially everything that's executable on chain. And I believe that the variety of instruments is going to keep expanding in the DeFi world. Mm -hmm. We can package it into this single trade vault. And our goal is to grow together with the DeFi space as a whole. Uh, I think that the amount of DEXs and DDEXs that are being built uh, kind of in the shadows right now is also pretty large. And so we pretty much want to integrate on a bunch of chains, a bunch of dApps, a bunch of assets, etc. We want the STVs to be like extremely customizable, essentially. So it's this social trading layer on top of DeFi and makes exactly. really put, really puts like, you know, I say like, oh, crypto is a game. Like it's this large, like multiplayer <laughs> online universe. And like this actually like puts it in a formalized way on chain. I think that's really cool. Exactly. We're trying to turn it into transparent championship. 
Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, so like, you know, say social fi and obviously like social is a huge part of crypto. Like we, I'm sure like we all like live on Twitter or at least you, you used to, but, um, how would you, um, describe like how, you know, social media and crypto and like the places where people gather have changed and things that you observe from like, you know, Bitcoin talk and Reddit from last cycle. Now, like crypto Twitter is like, has become the main arena. Yeah. So, um, I think in general, people have moved away from like Reddit, 4chan, and even uh, Bitcoin Talk and these other platforms. And crypto Twitter is definitely becoming the de facto place where the discussions happen. Uh, back in 2018, it was like uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and like five or six altcoins that were like the main camps. But crypto Twitter has become a much bigger world since. Now you have uh, the NFT world, you have the DeFi world, you have the um, like Bitcoin Maxi world, you have the more kind of like technical MEV or, or developer world, etc. right? And so it's like splintered into these like six or seven sub communities. Um, like I've already said, I actually think like whether we like it or not, I actually think NFTs have brought more people into crypto than even DeFi has simply because it's like easier to relate to. Um, and that's totally fine. But I still think DeFi is in the early innings of its potential. And um, today in this bear market, it might appear that DeFi has pretty much like collapsed and died completely, but I will believe that it will have a, a, a resurgence again and it, it will have four or five resurgences again, right? And because I think that essentially more and more of the system will keep flowing into DeFi. And in the grand scheme of things and like, the, the world economy is like half a quadrillion or something, right? And so in the grand scheme of things, DeFi is still like literally like a tiny baby. It hasn't even crawled out of its egg yet. So we still have a lot of growth potential ahead, in my opinion. Yeah, can I, can, I agree can I ask, with that. Can I ask one more thing? About like, okay, so since we're all kind of like people who've been around here for several years, right? And Brad, you went through like the whole 17, 18 cycle thing. Knowing what we know about DeFi now, right? Um, did did Bitcoiners make the right decision in leaving Bitcoin the way it is, or if you if you had to go back, right, back to 2016, 2017, and um, try to shift people's views, like would you actually try to shift people's views into changing Bitcoin to 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 try to accept some version of DeFi for it, or was it always the case that Bitcoin was was just uh, after after the the split, the Bitcoin Cash Bitcoin split, that it was always just going to be like this, and um, that it, it was up to these other L ones like ETH and Solana and whatever to to take the mantle of DeFi and run with it. So that's a that's a great question, uh, and I think the answer is twofold. I think the current reality of 2022 2023, it's proving the following. It's proving that dApps and like non-money use cases are actually important because um, like people think in a vacuum, they say, oh, like gambling is not important. Exchange is not important. Card NFTs are not important. DAOs are not important. But um, as a standalone sentence, it might be true, like I said, but when you put all these use cases together, it's like a whole new economy. It's like a whole new world. And as a whole, it produces a massive amount of Fee revenue, medium, uh, medium of like fee activity, medium of exchange activity, transfer activity, on-chain activity, volume activity, etc. Right, and um, 
I think Ethereum has proven that dApps and smart contracts and these like non-money use cases are very important. Obviously, like the biggest problem of Bitcoin, and and it's an amazing money, I think, but the biggest problem is that you pretty much buy it and that's it. You know, you pretty much buy it and store it in cold storage and you don't do anything else with it. Now, there's actually like a whole, like a relatively smaller world of Bitcoin DeFi that's emerging right now. And it's actually kind of cool because some of my friends in Chicago are building um, like leveraged perpetual trading on Lightning Network and a couple of other cool things like that, right? Debt markets, AMMs, etc. on Bitcoin. But obviously Bitcoin is like five years late, six years late to this, right? Um, and I think Bitcoiners are starting to understand that these use cases are important, as well as the fact that like the medium of exchange use case that you alluded to is also very important. So yeah, um, that's kind of like the conclusions of the last five years, right? Uh, it's I bad I, I when, yeah, it, it, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say like the, the, so, split, the, yeah. I, the splinter between Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin, it was necessary, right? Like Bitcoin had to solidify into what it did. But at the same time, I also think that it, it left a lot of, um, it created divisions within the community and, and, and kind of like put blinders on, right, to other things that, that could have been integrated into Bitcoin at the time, right? Had that split not had it had happened in, in the way it had been, like if it hadn't been so contentious, right? If it hadn't have like consumed the entire Bitcoin community for years, right? Because it, it, it wasn't just like a, like a short process, right? I mean, this was like a multi-year process leading up to uh, the, the split. I think I think if if it hadn't been so contentious, maybe these maybe these some of these things would have been integrated in. Like the, like there would have been more openness for integrating like uh, like uh, op it was like op return or like different different op codes into the Bitcoin system that would have allowed for people to build on top of it in an easier manner. Um, and that people are just coming around now to saying, okay, well let's let's try to do that. Let's think about what we can integrate in the longer term. And now they're having to have those discussions within the Bitcoin community at this point. So. I don't know. I mean, look, I, I think I think Bitcoin does what it does like perfectly, right? It's a proof of work system that is, you know, does one thing, which is create uncensorable money, right? And um, by choosing that, you know, they've allowed other networks like Ethereum and Solana to do like other stuff. And it's not saying that they're they're wrong, or there's just different, right? It's just different. They're just doing different things. Um, so. Yeah, you, you know how they say that like the the victors write write history, yeah. right? And so it's very easy for the purpose of a blog article or like a Bitcoin history lesson to promote the uh, events of 2017, like BTC versus Bitcoin Cash events, as like an ideological thing or a big block small block thing or like a medium of exchange versus store value thing. But in reality. It's a it was like a political battle, right? And there were certain individuals on one side and certain individuals on the other. And um, the, use, the, the, the small block kind of Bitcoin uh, core side has proven to be more powerful, right? They, that's just simply what has happened. That being said, I do think that Ethereum and and what it has achieved kind of proved some bits and pieces of the bitcoin cash theory correct in the sense that um money kind of needs to move around to grow 
And the reason I say that is because if for a second we entertain the idea that Bitcoin and Ethereum are both corporations or startups and they all have their own growth and marketing techniques, Bitcoin is kind of running into the situation where let's say you're a Bitcoin evangelist and you have to convince other people to buy your asset, right? You have to go to these people and appeal to these like libertarians and anti-central bankers and gold bugs. And you have to be like, look, like these guys are evil. They're printing the money. We need the hard money. You can only go so far with this. Most people don't give a shit about this stuff. The Ethereum is it's smart because you, you got the NFT trading card people involved. You got the the gamblers involved. There's going to be a bunch of sports betting dexes, I think, coming up in the next two, three years. That is going to bring another two million people. Uh, you got the traders in and it appeals. The use cases appeal to a wider crowd. None of these people that I mentioned give, give a shit about inflation or disinflation or central banking. They just want something fun to do on the Internet without other people telling them whether they can do it or not. Right. And yeah, I mean, if we just like forget about all the purity and the philosophy and the political ideology, use cases help the asset to grow. That's simply, that's, I think, what we're seeing right now. Yeah, you need something to fuel the velocity of money. It can't just be yeah. stagnant. It can't just exist to exist. Like you need actual use cases for it. And that's what Ethereum has to gone, done so well. It's, you yeah. know, if you compare Bitcoin to Ethereum, just on monetary properties alone, uh, Ethereum might actually be slightly worse and proof of stake might actually be slightly worse if you only compare it from a monetary point of view. But mm -hmm. the velocity of money and the dApps and the use cases make up for it, you know, and, you know, and it's, yeah. it's, it's a, it's a multidimensional battle. It's not, it's not so black and white. Yeah. You have to like sacrifice a little bit of this, like one aspect monetarily or exactly. to be better in this other for like actual real world uses. Yeah, and I think that Bitcoin might have gone too far in one side and then like the Solana and others might have gone too far on the other side. And Ethereum <laughs> is like this kind of somewhere in between that can make both work, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I was going to ask you, like, now since you're building SCFX, what's it like building a project, being on the other side instead of just trading it? it like, what's the experience like? Is there some things you didn't expect becoming a builder? Yeah, so uh, building, I think, is less anxiety than trading uh, because it's more of a long-term process. Uh, I do think that you can think of trading and you can treat every trade almost like a very small startup or a very small research project. But ultimately, if you're doing well, what the, the the visual output that your brain sees is just a larger number at the bottom of an Excel spreadsheet, right? And when you're building, the positive outcome is like a thousand, ten thousand people using something you've created. And I think there's a certain uh, sense of fulfillment to the latter. So I think building is more fulfilling than trading, uh, but it, it takes like a different neurochemistry to do it. Uh, it, like different, like different types of personalities do one thing better or the other. Um, I have enjoyed both. I, I do still continue to trade, just not as much as I have in the past and a little bit more medium term rather than short term. But, um, yeah, I mean, a building is just like super exciting because you get to assemble a team 
and do partnerships and try to grow the community. And there's a certain sense of a journey, a certain sense mm -hmm. of like a, like an ongoing uh, ongoing party and ongoing excitement. And and, it, and it's very cool. And also, yeah. I think like being a bit like be, building is kind of cool because you get to like think in your own head that you're contributing to this like growing new financial economy, new world. And yeah, it's just very cool. But I, I plan on I plan on continuing to trade as well. I see no reason why somebody doesn't have to do both. But I think during certain times in your youth, you kind of have to go all in in one or the other. And for for now, for me, that's like SDFX and just building. Yeah. But, what but, kind of? Uh, uh, can I ask one more thing? What yeah, is yeah. the neurochemistry that goes into being a builder and the neurochemistry that goes to being a trader? Like, what do you see like necessary yeah. for each one? Yeah, I think the traders, they're really good at understanding the flows and the rumors and before they manifest and what the large, um, how trading is essentially about trying to predict what like large players and large stakeholders uh, and the true movers and shakers are going to do after like new events continuously like pop up on the timeline, right? And they're much better at like predicting the flow of the macro economy, right? And um, I think tr uh, building is more about the psychology of building is essentially like an extension of entrepreneurship just in a decentralized world for us. And I think entrepreneurship is about on it's more it's even more about human psychology than it is about engineering. And I think uh, a good product is something that solves a problem for a person or at least does something like at least seven or eight X better, cheaper, faster or something. Um, and I think building is about understanding humans and understanding what kind of um, anxieties and frustrations and hopes that they have and building a product that fulfill it plugs some of those holes. And so uh, you need empathy. And so um, as a trader, you need to be a bit more of a mercenary. You need to be like, faster, richer, or somehow better. And I think when you're building, you need to like understand like the human problems. And that's like the core difference. I think like being a, being a trader is more PVP while being a builder is more PVE. Like that's the main, it's two different I, games. I, I, I tend to agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would also say that like uh, trading is even negative PVP even because like the exchanges, they win no matter what. Right. Uh, <laughs> the house so always like, wins. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, but um, yes, I do think that uh, building is a little bit more positive sum for sure. Um, I just wanted to jump in and ask Murat, like you're in a very unique position because your product you're building, you could actually be a trader still and start putting up your strategies in these right now. Are, are your trading strategies available publicly for me to daisy chain? I'm asking for a friend, of course. Yeah, uh, I know that um, Taleb in his book, he like said that if you like, if you cut someone's hair, or even if you are literally the single best neurosurgeon in the world, right? You can only do so many surgeries per day, let's say three or four or whatever. But uh, he said, like, there's two industries in the world where what's called your time leverage is, like, pretty much infinite. And that's technology and finance. And I really like DeFi because it's, like, both. 
So it can even it, like it can be even crazier, right? In that sense. Uh, but to answer your question, I will definitely be putting up some of my own volts. And we're actually running a competition right now with a hundred thousand dollars in prizes. And in the first couple of weeks, I've been putting up my own volts as well. So yeah, uh, I definitely plan on doing that. Just ape in, ape into Murad. <laughs> yeah, it's ape into Murad. And you said earlier you had two thousand users. Um, are are these like two thousand managers, or are they kind of a blend of both users and uh, managers? There's more investors than managers, and that's pretty much what we expected to happen. Uh, but in our platform, and I think what's there's there's very interesting. Like on our platform, any MetaMask wallet can be either an investor or a manager or both. There's nothing you can do. You can literally do both at any time, right? And your profile will kind of be split in half and will show your statistics as an investor and show your statistics as a manager. So anybody can play either one of the roles or both simultaneously. Uh, what we really like about our platform is that most of the vaults platforms in DeFi right now, it's pretty much like team or the DAO whitelisting like 10 or 12 like yield generation strategies. And then you go on their website and it's like those 10 and 12 things, right? Uh, we uh, have created a platform which is completely permissionless. So we think we're gonna have tens of thousands of volts because anybody can literally go and create them. And we, um, we are not aiming for our volts to last months, like I said, we're shooting right now, we're shooting for summer between two days and two weeks. That's kind of like the time frame where we're shooting for. And we think that because it's permissionless and anybody can come and make money, um, we're, you're gonna see a whole variety of volts. And that's what we're trying to, we're trying to give people the tools and we think they're going to create a bunch of different things. Um, speaking of mercenaries and exchanges, we are currently seeing a battle for the ages right now between CZ and SBF happening in front of us. Um, what's your take on this like whole situation of like Alameda FTX insolvency and then uh, CZ going in with the dump and then like trying to fight the FUD and everybody's like pulling out of the exchanges. It's pretty wild right now. But what do you think about all this? Um, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything I'll regret because I use both, uh, exchanges extensively in my day to day, um, Understood. As, as do a lot of founders, but what I will say is, um, I think that certain participants in this battle of the Titans, so to speak, they are more ideologically aligned with the original ideological, philosophical, and political beliefs of the early creators of the crypto space. That is to say, they are definitely more sort of anarcho-capitalist and libertarian and like crypto punk or cypherpunk, if you will, than others. And uh, I think... Um, trying to do regu regulatory capture uh, in the United States to try to fuck your competitors is a bit fucked up. That's, that's, that's what I'll say on the issue. And also um, trying to re regulate uh, DeFi front ends, uh, even if it's only on the USA IP side, is also a bit fucked up. And that both of those things go against what I believe in. Uh, and I strongly disagree with it. Um, and yeah, uh, I, 
that's kind of I, I, I want to say a lot more, but I just don't want to say things that I'll regret. But that's kind of uh, if, 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 if I was politically correct, that's what I would say. Yeah, we get the gist of it. Yeah, we got it. <laughs> yeah, and we've talked about this before uh, in previous episodes as well. Yeah, um, exactly. Uh, so in terms of like the U.S. regulatory environment, uh, something that you know has been said a lot in the past is the split that's going to happen between you know RegFi and DarkFi, or like even more so um, U.S. DeFi and then World DeFi. Like, do you think that split's actually going to happen, and like Americans are just going to be trapped in this like? little bubble while like the rest of the world can like enjoy DeFi more fully or do you think like it's it's gonna have to be like we, we're gonna have to like actually let me i'll let you answer the question no i don't think the split happens and if it does then the american side is just gonna lose i mean americans are very very wealthy people and a very very wealthy empire but the rest of the world combined is still a bigger market right and if america like over regulates crypto too much then they're gonna just shoot itself and themselves in the foot the fundamental problem in american politics and global politics in general is that like there's 80 year olds in power and they have no clue about what the 20 year olds are building and it's kind of messed up uh so they're out of touch but my fundamental belief and even though there might be some bumps on the road my fundamental philosophical belief is that technology moves faster than law. So I think we're going to be completely fine. Um, but uh, yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, understood. I, yeah, I feel like if the U.S. plays our cards too early, then like, you know, and that value is just going to go abroad and you're already seeing and you've already seen that with like a lot of founders, you know, being based outside the U.S. and you can even argue that like a lot of the innovation will happen in developing countries because those are the places that actually like need DeFi and need um, more inflation hedges than like in the U.S. where people are in the West where people are already comfortable. Like there's less of a need for DeFi, but more so for like just straight up gambling. Maybe yeah, not a need for it, it, but like, yeah. And, and I think that like we're going to reach a point where there is going to be simply more DeFi builders, operators and participants than there are. Uh, American politicians or even American soldiers or whatever, you can catch them all. You can like, you can get them all. It's just, there's not enough human labor to catch every decentralized builder. So, um, I mean, the internet, intranet, IPs, VPNs, all, all of that infrastructure will get progressively more decentralized as well. And yeah, it, it's like the, the, the 2025 year olds building this stuff, they will always stay a couple of steps ahead of the regulators. And beyond all of these discussions, there's two more things we need to understand. First of all, uh, the BTC and ETH holders and the biggest American corporate uh, crypto holders in the United States, they are becoming very wealthy. And they have like senators and house representatives and lobbyists of their own. So honestly, regulation might not even be that bad. Uh, second of all, there's also going to be uh, senators themselves that kind of play to like pretend to be decentralized and, and support the crypto industry, whatever. So it's a chaotic world. Uh, we know for a fact that there are American politicians or and global politicians really 
whose families, kids, wives own BTC and ETH themselves. So it's not so black and white. It's not so black and white, a white house against blockchain. No, it's not like that. You need to understand that every political entity and every political ministry or whatever, it's an institution, but every institution is also uh, composed of a thousand individuals. And each of these individuals have their own greed, uh, have their own hopes, dreams, anxieties, kids, etc. And I think the crypto space will be completely fine. I do think that either in the next cycle or the cycle after that, there will be a point in history where they will try to attack uh, crypto and DeFi and all of this stuff quite harshly. So that needs to be prepared for, for sure. Uh, because I think right now, most of the politicians in America still think that crypto is um, just just a bunch of random Pokemon coins that teenagers buy weed on the internet with. But um, And so they don't think of it as a threat. But there will be a point in, in one or two cycles from now where it will appear like a threat. And they will try to scramble to attack it. Obviously, the fiat gateways being the weakest choke point. It's fine that I'm saying this out loud because it's public knowledge. And so they will try to attack those or whatever. But ultimately, and, and that will probably make that particular bear market of those years worse. But ultimately, we will survive. And uh, that's what I believe in. Just build DeFi infrastructure and the gateways uh, that is decentralized. That's it. Amen to that. Um, I think... We're about to wrap up soon and we can go into our lightning round. What do you mm -hmm. think, Kate? Yeah, I, I think that was the perfect point to end at. It was yeah. it was hopeful and there's a little yeah. know, dash of excitement there for the future. I, I really um, do appreciate your optimism, Murad, because like a lot of people, especially in the US, are pessimistic about like regulation and, and whatnot. But like I re I think I really align with your philosophy of like the world is gonna be on chain. It's just a matter of how we're gonna get there. Yeah, I mean, um, I've realized that when I was like 23 or 24 that, uh, first of all, we, we, we live in a world of optimists and we live in a world of extroverts. And I think just relatively speaking, it's more advantageous to try to cultivate those types of like mindsets, frameworks and beliefs, because as a whole, over the long term, the world is growing. So uh, we are approaching an age of abundance and uh, there's so many things to build, explore, solve. Um, if you keep a positive mindset, you can, you can succeed in any endeavor. Amen. Love that. I love that. All right, Murat. So at the end of these um, pods, we usually have a series of lightning questions. So I'm going to throw the first one at you. When did you first touch the chain and sexes don't count? What was the first thing you did on a blockchain? Doesn't have to be ETH or Bitcoin. Uh, it was uh, 2013. What and, did you do? Uh, so I bought a couple of BTC, like just P2P. Like and, at localbitcoin.com? Uh, something like that, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I also did something else, but I'm, I'm not going to talk about it. <laughs> got it, got it. <laughs> all right all right second question uh, i mean maybe this is related to the second question but what is your favorite off-chain activity what do you what is your favorite touch grass activity hobbies uh you mean that have nothing to do with crypto um yeah yeah hobbies, interests, yeah something <laughs> um 
So I really like running. I'm actually training for a marathon right now. Um, it puts me in a very meditative state. I'm very interested in Buddhism and uh, none, of the, none of the esoteric or mystical aspects of it, but the more practical ones. Uh, I, think, I think meditation and prayer are fundamentally probably the same thing uh, at, a, at, a, at, a, at a chemical level. And I think um, you can put yourself in meditative states that feel better than drugs or sex. Uh, it, it does require a lot of practice, but it is possible. And I think uh, it's underexplored. And um, yeah, I just I, I also really like reading about two topics, uh, kind of like futurism and science and AI and AGI. And I also like general uh, like personal development and self-improvement. So these and I also really like cooking. So these are like kind of like my favorite my favorite activities right now. Cool. Cool. Uh, what's some advice you would give to your five your younger self five years ago? Um. My younger self five years ago, uh, use less leverage, and also uh, try to think for the long <laughs> try to think for the long term, uh, and uh, I think the biggest competitive advantage of our age for anybody is how well you manipulate technology, um, and so I I this is probably going to offend a lot of people, but I do think that STEM is more important than humanities for our future and uh, l start learning to code earlier. As a word cell, I am hurt. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm, just kidding. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a word cell myself, so that's, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, and then for me, last question is, if you weren't in crypto or finance, what would your professional career be? Um, like something to do with AI or, or just like traditional tech, probably okay. either, either, either that or, or either that or like psychology or sociology or, or something like that. Very cool. Very cool. We've had, uh, you know, neuroscience as an answer. We had a, yes. a world travel blogger as an answer we had on energy show before. Yeah, I, I think the world needs to uh, like 100x our uh, investment into cognitive neuroscience research because I believe that um, understanding the brain is the key to literally like solving every problem, like colonizing space, immortality, curing cancer, etc. Wow, so hopeful. I love it. I hope I live long enough to see all of it. <laughs> I, I really, I, 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 my biggest fear is that our generation uh, is that, uh, my biggest fear is that our generation is that generation that teenagers in the 24th century will be laughing, laughing at as the last unlucky generation where after we die and then they create immortality like a couple of years after we die, that will be very sad. <laughs> So I'm really the uh, biggest rug. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm really hoping that there will be like a, ch a chain of breakthroughs, at least when we are 50 or 60, so that we can at least preserve the digital versions of our consciousness. Uh, that's what I'm praying for. Because if because if we just die like that, that's going to be very sad. I hope to live 400, 500 years at least. <laughs> and uh, on, on that note, Dave, you, you want to sign us out? 
Yeah. Uh, thanks so much, Murad, for coming on. This has been super informative podcast in every way. And it's been great to, like, one thing to read your worldview, but it's like really a treat to hear your worldview. Yeah, for sure, man. Uh, super, super uh, thank you to you guys for inviting me. Uh, that was a very pleasant conversation. And uh, yeah, uh, maybe I'll come again sometime in the future. Yeah, we'll get Peach Absolutely. on with you too. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Let's yeah. do it. Thanks, man. Appreciate Thanks. it. For sure. Thank you, everyone, for watching this edition of Flywheel Pod, where we had Mustap Murad, and we covered literally everything. We covered, covered philosophy, trading, building, money, stable coins, volatile assets, where the future of crypto and the world is heading. Um, this was a real treat, honestly, and I uh, really enjoyed this one. Uh, any final thoughts? I think for me, like his final full adoption of crypto is when the market just rips straight upward and becomes yeah. up only is when crypto becomes mainstream. I sure yeah. hope that happens. <laughs> I know. thought it was, uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting when he said like, he'll probably like, there's basically like the fiat world and the crypto world. And at, at what, some cycle, whether it's the next one or two or three cycles from now, there's just gonna be a switch and it's going to yeah. turn into a crypto world over a fiat world. And I'm like, that That sounds violent. Violent, and, and yeah. Drastic, I mean, you know? That's what he was talking about. He was like all like, you know, monetary changes in monetary systems have for the most part been chaotic to say the least. Yeah. Sam, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, just, uh, I, I disagree. I, I don't I don't think it's the case. I think like when you look at fiat, it's, it's, designed, it's designed to be a liability, right? So, um, you know, and, and Bitcoin is a collateral, right? So it's two different things. So it's just trying to address two different things. I, I'm, I'm on the view that they go hand in hand. I'm all for hyper Bitcoin dollarization where like the higher the Bitcoin goes, the more dollars that can be created through debt. And then that drives the Bitcoin price higher. And then there's more dollars that can be created. So like, I, I think, I think he's, he, he, I think he thinks of it as this like zero sum uh, like zero sum winner take all thing, but I on the other hand I think it just goes hand in hand. Like we want we want a good debt asset and we want a good collateral asset, and and that's where both Bitcoin and the dollar because the dollar is like really nebulous about what it is. If you think of it more as like Bitcoin's the best asset that you can hold as collateral versus the dollar, which is the best debt asset, right? So they go hand in hand. I don't think there's really any sort of PVP. It's it's a it's a one one makes the other better, right? You can't have you can't have Bitcoin without having dollars, and you dollars can't have dollars. Well, I mean, I guess you had Bitcoin without dollars, but just like Bitcoin it needs dollars to to drive debt and drive leverage, which is essential for the crypto markets. There's enough room in the pie for everyone. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And on that note, if you like this episode, give us a like. Let us know in the comments. Hit that bell button. Subscribe. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at FlywheelPod. Join our Telegram at FlywheelPod. You can follow me on Twitter at DeFiDave22. You can follow me at 0x capital underscore K. And I'm at Traders underscore Insight. And we'll see you next week. Peace.